What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by the by the, the crusty and the trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing today, man? Uh, no, this is Patrick. How's it going? <laughs> uh, actually, no, I'm Patrick. But regardless, you know, usually these early pods were like, you know, scraping bottom of the barrel. Like, oh, we're going to go see this crappy January movie just to have something to talk about here. No, that's not the case. The The content gods have been good to us so far this year. Yeah, it's uh, unexpected. Not uh, not, not anything I, I'd seen coming just generally. And then when you think about not only are we having things to talk about, but it's a, it's a new weekend album already. It's like, oh, wow, this, this is awesome. But HBO also pulling up, getting, getting, getting going early. So yeah, very exciting. Uh, I like like having uh, stuff going on. It's, it's great. And we're going to be talking about some movies, some TV, and some music today. If you want to get this the minute it drops, subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod or go on Spotify and follow us there. Uh, you can follow the podcast. Give us a five-star reading and review. That's nostalgiapod on Spotify. And we also have a, a new playlist for this year because it's no longer 2021. You can check out all the good music in 2021 if you search nostalgia best of 2021 but now we have nostalgia best of 2022 uh we're gonna start with i think a, an album that's gonna have a few songs to kick off the playlist mm. because the weekend dropping uh the first big album of the year the follow-up to after hours the 2020 smash hit album that was not grammy nominated at all <laughs> With Dawn FM, just uh, announced a week ago, Dave. I mean, where did this come from? And uh, that that was the very question, indeed. Album five from the weekend, but like, I didn't feel remotely close to a new weekend album cycle. Do I think, in large part, to the long tail that Blinding Lights had as the second single off After Hours, but the weekend having just this banner two years you know huge album huge song super bowl halftime show and just blinding lights sticking around forever being in the top 10 for a whole year only song to ever do that already the second most streamed song on spotify coming up on three billion streams there setting all kinds of chart records and only leaving the chart at all like a few months ago so i was like oh surely the weekend you know he's chilling but Lest we forget, he hasn't toured this whole time, apart from the halftime show. And, you know, like when he did uh, Save My Tears with Ariana, he hasn't really done performing. So he had time to, to, to get back in the lab. And, well, hot damn, he did. Dawn FM, the, really really coming out of nowhere. Because I didn't really think Take My Breath was, like, uh, setting us up for something. Because that was also several months ago as the lead single back in August. So Dawn FM definitely surprised me. And I feel like it surprised a lot of people just by existing. Uh, right now yeah uh when i saw that he tweeted you know uh, be awake at dawn or whatever it was a week ago i was like oh we're getting something but you know my, my first thought was probably just a single maybe he's dropping something of a, a lead up to an album no he's dropping the album and uh <laughs> it's a concept album again you know it, after hours uh very famously had the whole uh, fear and loathing in las vegas mm. uh vibe to it you know the yeah. weekend famously getting pros- yes getting the prosthetics in his face and having the broken noses and the bandages the whole thing forming at the halftime show very famously with all this stuff so you know dawn fm also getting a concept of uh as he described it being in pur- purgatory and sitting in your car as you're moving towards the light one way or the other and uh you know you, you can take the album as a, a joyous album or as a sad album depending on how you look at it but you know the weekend dawns the cover with this old aged face uh mm. of himself uh it seems like he might need to like tap himself into these concepts in order to make music that is maybe a little bit more i don't know uh different maybe like push himself outside the box a little bit more after hours mm. i think notably was a move more towards 
that that pop sound that and that 80s pop sound that really yeah he fits really well with so um what do you make of this like just the fact that he's kind of had these concepts for these last two that really stand out yeah i'd like to see how much he commits to this concept because with after hours you know he, he wore the red suit for two years like it was pretty easy mm-hmm. to follow along with but in, it's not like he's an old makeup for the uh, sacrifice music video that's out sure. now so I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if there's like an aesthetic thing that's easy to latch on to there but i mean conceptually yeah he's obviously just making better music more impressive music more like thoughtful album construction and all that stuff but he's been at the pop forefront for a long time. Star Starboy was the real dive into that, but he already had pop success before even that album. So it's not really anything new there. But yeah, he is the leader of the uh, 1980s in mainstream pop revival and doing it arguably the best or among the best because he's doing it beyond just like pastiche or chasing a you know trend. He's... I think it's because The weekend's so adept at melody and so adept at forming these concepts that when songs feel familiar, whether it's harking back to Phil Collins or Michael Jackson, whoever it may be, depending on the song, it still makes a lot of sense because he's just kind of been building up to this uh, for so long. And it is it is pretty cool to listen to Dawn FM as the sequel to After Hours or just the, the subsequent record because... I, I do find it quite different, even if like you can make plenty of parallels with the production. I, I think just there are a lot more stickier radio friendly joints on After Hours, full stop. But that isn't that is not necessarily a bad thing that Dawn FM is more like album mode, you know, uh, seamless transitions and all that, you know. Yeah, I think that's the first uh detail of the album that really stood out to me was just how this felt like uh, obviously the concept of the radio station in the car kind of as the transition point but it really felt kind of like a power hour at points you know that first run from gasoline through uh sacrifice is just boom 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 seamless transition seamless transition and it really kind of keeps you at that like elevated energy like high energy level whereas then when you know you get a tale by quincy and it kind of goes to the out of time here we go again best friends uh run it's a little bit more toned down but again all kind of sewn together so uh, there's definitely uh ideas here that i think are moving away from that radio uh play which is kind of funny with the radio uh (laughs) you know concept or radio scheme running through it but um, he he had something he wanted to to get across here. Do you feel like he did that effectively in these songs? Yeah, I I think lyrically it's not quite as dark on a personal level. The way we come to associate with the weekend and his you know hedonistic Lothario nature that we've come to know for so many albums at this point, it's not quite there. Although there's still plenty of that. He notably. Uh, shades bella hadid's new uh significant other on this while acknowledging that he's probably with angeline jolie at this time so he's still being himself but i think what what kind of jumped out to me was if you look at the credits on this the production is the blinding lights production crew it's max martin oscar holter and uh, who can blame him again given the massive success of blinding lights and yet, it's not like what you associate necessarily with Max Martin. The This is m- melodic math, pop perfection. This guy makes pop music in the lab for rapid consumption. It's not that kind of music. And yet, it's from the people that you expect to give you that. And I think that speaks a long way with The weekend really having a clear vision of what kind of music he he's trying to deliver. And I think for me... There is a sameness to that production. I think that's hard to deny. Like the, there was a viral thing on Twitter about like you can kind of like uh, mix and mash a lot of the loops on the production side of things for the first half of that album, and it feels very familiar. I'd imagine the beats per minute is is nearly identical, but it all still seems to work because 
it still has that melody. It still has, I think, The weekend trying to re- refine his lyrics to a certain sense. And yeah, do, 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 do I necessarily want to be in The weekend's vision of purgatory more than that like five song run on After Hours? No, I don't think so, but I, I, you'd still admire the work. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot here to like. Um, and you do get uh, a variety of, of songs. I think, like you mentioned, some of them can sound samey. That BPM and the, that run I mentioned in the beginning uh, probably is very close together. And then you get you kind of get back to it near the end. But I think there's like a, a spectrum here of the, you know, the slower toned down R&B with the more uh, pop R&B songs and at the beginning and a song like less than zero kind of feels like something in the middle of those two right where it's Ooh. it's upbeat but it's still a little bit more toned back and softer and i i think i i really enjoyed this um <laughs> there's a couple of moments that left me just a little like head scratching confused i don't know if all of the like stories necessarily were things that i needed in there um mm. jim carrey specifically at the end i was like okay like it's totally weird and out there but also something abel probably knew was going to kind of come across that way um yeah. his but, apparently dear friend and uh, neighbor jim carrey uh, i mean uh is he from canada the weekend originally of course yeah he's from yeah. the six like drake oh that's right that's right yeah, I guess that makes sense. Jim Carrey, notably another famous uh, Canadian star. So maybe yeah. they're just boys. That way. I don't know. Um, uh, why don't we talk about the songs that stood out most to you? What, what were the tracks that grabbed you right away? Yeah, so I'd say Gasoline, uh, track two, stood out to me just for the vocals. Uh, kind of like pitched, pitched around there, pretty fun. Uh, Take My Breath, notably a different version of what we're used to. This is the album version of the song, not the single. So there's a lot more like protracted intro and outro on this version. I think overall, Take My Breath, pretty good. You know, it, it was, it was oh. again, kind of funny to have that song come out still in the wake of Blinding Lights domination. But uh, I, I think that's probably like the glitziest song here. Yeah. Uh, and then Sacrifice, which uh, got the first music video. Produced by Swedish House Mafia, of which The Weeknd just did a song with them as well. I think that chorus from The Weeknd is really, really dynamite, really catchy. Yeah, but th- I think there's a lot of good moments too. Like, o- really awesome to see Tyler the Creator on this album. Uh, on Here We Go Again, my 2020 album of the year meets my 2021 album of the year. Of course, that's the record where you have the shade at Bella Hadid of course, which I actually think was some pretty savage lines. You ended up with someone so basic, faceless, someone take your pictures and frame it. And my new, new girl, she a movie star. Not holding anything back. I, I respect it. You know, I didn't necessarily love that song, but Tyler is always like a welcome presence. And I, I feel like he's yeah. on that feature run where he's just always coming in and sounding uh, inspired. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it also wasn't like a t- Tyler, like, wrapping his ass off like with like really fast flow type of verse which we've got a lot of recently it was a little more restrained about you know sign that prenup and whatnot so i think it still yeah. works but yeah it's not it was my favorite song yeah but i think it's still notable um I, I agree with you on that you know that beginning run that i mentioned um take my breath just is such a dynamite uh you know fourth track on this album um I, I went back and listened to it like two or three times just because it really that transition from how do I make you love me can't get those like eye of the tiger yeah. like guitars and then it just like brings in the the synths and it's like okay here we go and then yeah transitioning from take my breath to sacrifice uh, again awesome transition you mentioned the chorus on that is super sticky uh, really those those three um, how do I make you love me take my breath and sacrifice stood out yeah. gasoline you mentioned the vocals on it I didn't totally work for me um but I, I appreciate he's going for something a little different on it um now in in that like slow run what did you think of like a song like best friends because i didn't like it on first listen but running it back it stood out to me on second no, listen yeah i i like i like best friends i i just like it lyrically you know um mm-hmm. in in the wake of euphoria returning to hbo uh 
you don't want to have sex as friends no more. I'm like, wow, yeah, this is this is this is the correct vibe right now. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned uh, how, how do I make you love me? Also, I think a really impressive vocal performance from the weekend, and that's really why I started thinking like, oh, production wise, this is really just the uh, Dawn FM is really just the uh, logical landing place for where the weekend has been growing from a production side of things. Of course, making a few songs with Daft Punk back on Starboy making a one-off single with Gasaffelstein, you know, mm-hmm. and now just really going all out. And yeah, you got Calvin Harris on here. You got Swedish House Mafia on here. Really still a Max Martin joint, but it still feels like the, the, the natural, you know, evolution, which is, which is really yeah. cool. Uh, you mentioned Swedish House Mafia before, rumored to be headlining Coachella. Already announced they're doing a, a comeback. So uh, right. excited to see whatever we get from them. We'll be covering that. Uh, you also mentioned the I Heard You're Married with Calvin Harris. You got a little Wayne feature on that. I mean, what? <laughs> like, that was that was one of those moments where I was like, ah, I didn't need this. I don't yeah. really want to hear much from Wayne anymore. I don't know. No, I don't. I don't. Some people say he's got he's uh, on the comeback trail. I'm just not interested. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that end, like, the Jim Carrey outro is pretty memorable, at least. Mm-hmm. And memorable, I, for sure. But I actually feel like my favorite part there at the end is Every Angel is Terrifying, which is essentially just this radio ad fitting the the motif, you know, uh, the exotic, bizarre, and beautiful world of afterlife. You know, I thought it was very convincing advertisement. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Um, yeah, you know, overall, really pleased with this. And I, I feel like even though it probably doesn't reach the highs of after hours for me, just... I love the direction he's going in. He just feels super inspired and really yeah. in his bag right now. So still only 31 years old too, man. You know, it's, you gotta hope he wants to keep working. It's really exciting, but he's announced that there's going to be a, a tour supporting this and also supporting after hours. Cause he had to postpone the after hours tour a few times. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely interested in seeing that stadium tour just cause he's really, feeling himself these days and also delivering uh with, with the the music at the end of the day too so really exciting stuff yeah and pretty much every place that's reviewed this has given it like high marks eight of tens you yeah. know four or five stars five of five that sort of thing this is a this is going to get a lot of play and it was it was being streamed relentlessly over the weekend so mm-hmm. um we'll be uh adding a few songs to our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist why don't we move on dave because you mentioned euphoria is back but first let's let's talk about another show that's back first time in a a few years righteous gemstones returns uh you know it premiered in september of 2019 uh how many episodes of that first season was like Uh, nine i think nine yeah and uh i I think pretty much we were like it, it had ups and downs throughout the season but overall we really enjoyed the ride with it obviously sitting with <laughs> comic geniuses like Danny McBride, um, Adam Devine, Edie Patterson, I think was a clear standout from the season. Oh, yeah. John Goodman, of course, always a welcome presence on screen. Lots to like there. Um, <laughs> you get Walton Goggins uh, and Danny McBride teaming up uh, since was the vice principals. And um, mm-hmm. that, that, was, that was a good uh, back and forth between them. Season two, two uh three years later now uh two and a half yeah a few months but what did you think of this this premiere last night you get two episodes yeah just happy to have the show back uh because the i think the overall premise the overall concept of the show was really appealing for a comedy show it still makes sense you know if there's that creative triforce of david gordon green jody hill and danny mcbride eastbound down to vice principals to righteous gemstones it's a really self-aware show that still doesn't shy away from some of that classic uh, Danny McBride raw uh, humor that you expect from him. And just seeing the lampooning of the grifters that are televangelists, which is really smart, but also really fun to be with. You know, we kind of got this subject matter a little bit with the eyes of Tammy Faye uh, in this past fall a movie that is uh, successful in some manner and less so in others. But I, I feel like Gemstones, just, there's just so much room for each member of the ensembles to just have meaningful arcs or at the very least just be really funny 
to be with that I, I just think it's really fun yeah I, I agree the con the concept of it there's so much meat on that bone and uh just if, if you come for just the absurd uh mega church uh performances and gimmicks that they come up with and how ridiculous that is or you actually stay for these uh you know the the infighting the family infighting and right the like dumb succession almost like aspect yeah. of the show it's uh it's really enjoyable to to be with these characters you know danny mcbride's a actor who it can be hit or miss for me i think sometimes he can be like so over the top that it's like i don't really love his his shtick and then sometimes he can tone it back a little bit and it, it really works well and i feel like he finds a really good sweet spot especially in these first two episodes of season two where he's <laughs> ludicrous and ridiculous him talking to his oldest son about his younger son uh you know finding himself and jerking off and uh how his older son has to talk to him about it explaining it just hilarious and it feels like he really at least in my for me really finds the sweet spot in this show um especially in the in in season two so far i've really enjoyed him what aspects of the premiere the first two episodes of the season have really caught you or stood out to you Oh, I think the conflict that's being established with a a journalist who has a problem with televangelists and wants to expose the hypocrisy, uh, played by Jason Schwartzman, and that's a really uh, smart conflict to insert here. And I think it, 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 it might have a good use with the audience where you just keep exposing uh, why these are bad people that we just happen to like being with because they're all funny and they do stupid shit. But, you know, exposing why they're all so bad, you know, I, I, and, and doing it in a meaningful way, if that's where it goes, you know, gives the Righteous Gemstones a place to kind of like level up as commentary beyond just the obvious lampooning. So I'm curious to see where those through lines go, because I know the ensemble stuff will be pretty consistent. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm excited to see where that goes, too. It, it seems like from what we saw at the end, I'm, I'm interested to see. Is, is Schwartzman going to be in this? Because yeah, he had guest actor credit after the first episode, so it doesn't seem like it's going to be the whole yeah. whole season. I mean, you also have um, Goodman getting in that fight, which I have to imagine is going to be used against him down the line, given what happened to the other preacher that they set up with the beginning of the, the premiere. So they're setting up all these threats, and maybe Schwartzman's just, just kind of part of it, the way like Eric Andre seemingly is also uh, kind of part of it this time. Yeah, well, at the end of the second episode, you know, you, you they they go to that house and they see all the blood and uh, mm-hmm. the it, it seems like Schwartzman might be dead at this point, which would be too bad if he's really just like a few scenes and he's done. I imagine that might be something to throw us off the the scent a little bit because to get, to get him for two episodes only would be like a bit surprising. It feels like um, I love seeing Eric Andre pop in. I I thought he. It was absolutely hilarious in this. And, you know, we, we talked about how his stand-up was something that was a bit hard for us to get into at, at points. Yeah. But um, I thought the way he played his role as a the, the listen, uh, whatever. Yeah. Name, his blended the, listen. Uh, the West Coast version of the Gemstones, basically. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, or Lyle listen, that's what it was, was um was really well done. Um, and uh I, I'm interested to see how he comes back into the fold of this. I, I don't think he's going to be something that's just a few episodes and then done for this season, at least. Yeah, honestly, it's it, it's per Eric Andre standards, it's a bit restrained, you know. Yeah, but it still seemed to fit in. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think you also mentioned uh, Eric Roberts here, and <laughs> so it, I I feel like I, I've seen I've seen him in so many things. He's always kind of been like a that guy in a lot of things. Um, to me at least and i had never seen him perform like this in a lot of the things i feel like i've seen him he's been kind of like the smoldering villain or like smoldering like other guy to like uh you know a love interest or something like that mm-hmm. he was like so wildly like silly and absurdist in this i <laughs> i think he's really having a lot of fun just uh kind of letting himself go out there and, and be out there yeah. um another Another aspect of the show that I, I find really interesting, and I don't know if you noticed this, but Evie's husband, um, first of all, he might be like my favorite 
like big character in the show him like drinking the glass of milk out of a wine glass at a family dinner is just absolutely ridiculous to me i just like burst out laughing when i saw it he was like swishing it around too which i just thought was so stupid but then also like uh Edie and him ride up in a golf cart and he's like holding on to the the emergency <laughs> bar it's like yeah, so dumb but then when uh in the second episode when the the three gemstone siblings are about to go confront the the reporter and he's like oh am i gonna come with he he was like on the phone like with i feel like either like talking to somebody or trying to like record them or something that that really like stood out to me i feel like mm-hmm. he might be pulled into the fold here because uh, it also seemed like Cassidy Freeman, who plays um, Danny McBride's wife, Amber, um, right. it seems like she's getting a little bit more shine this season, yeah. too. So it might be pulling some of these ex tertiary characters in more. Yeah, I'd also like to see what uh, Skylar uh, Gisando has up, what they have him up to as uh, McBride's oldest. Obviously, he's been on the rise, big part in Licorice Pizza recently. So very charming in that movie. So. He has, you know, a bit, a bit of plot in season one, although it's not like I think the most the best part about the show or anything. So I'm curious to see what happens that because he's in the family fold right now. Right. Obviously, it's a huge yeah. change for the first season. <laughs> um, by the way, I just want to say his name is Tim Baltz, the character who plays BJ, uh, Judy's um, mm. husband. And uh, probably my favorite like joke of the whole thing was them talking about how they got married at Disney World. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> had Prince Eric officiate couldn't even get a, an a level you know legendary or mickey whatever. fucking mouse <laughs> <laughs> fuck mickey mouse hilarious <laughs> just so good uh the, the show is great uh writing is great i'm really excited to see where it goes um so we'll we'll be uh checking back in with gemstones as the season wraps up well let, let's get to what we've all been really looking forward to with hbo euphoria returning for season two we get the uh, the, the Rue uh, episode and Jules. They, they only did two, yeah, and Jules. They just did yeah. Rue and Jules, I think, over the pandemic. Was that two years ago now? That wasn't last uh, year, was it? That was 2021. Wow. Had to be. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, because uh, so. Euphoria was pandemic delayed. The finale was August 2019. And the interim, Sam Levinson made the two Euphoria specials, which are really minimalist, central rule rue and jewels and he also of course made malcolm and marie for netflix with zendaya as well right in in the interim because they just want he wanted to want to work in, in a way he could and he just couldn't make euphoria until you know they could shoot it in a safer manner but judging by the the premiere uh they, they didn't hold anything back you have that new year's eve house party which is uh as dense as it gets for a house party on screen so it seems like they're back and I saw this point out in review. I didn't realize this because, again, it's, it's been a while since we saw Euphoria. I actually read some like recaps just to remember like some plot beats just to make sure I had everything down. But Euphoria season one ends in its story around like winter formal time at that high school. The specials right. that we got in the interim took place around Christmas Eve. And this premiere is taking place at New Year's Eve. Obviously, it's a New Year's Eve party as our core setting. So not a lot of time has actually passed in the sake of the show, even though a lot of time has actually passed in the real world. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I'm curious to see uh, what Storm Reed, uh, Rue's sister, uh, comes across as. Because Storm Reed uh, was quite young. I think she's a bit more of a teenager now. It'll probably be noticeable that she's definitely not the same age anymore. We didn't we didn't see her in the premiere, so we'll see we'll see about that. But it's been a long time for Euphoria. But I'm definitely happy HBO didn't uh, pull anything back and got got the got the show rolling. Yeah, it's been a long time, but the show has not missed a beat. Because I thought this uh, premiere episode of season two was really gripping. And, uh, you know, similar to Gemstone, starting off with a flashback sequence uh, to um, start the season. Uh, You you see basically Fez's whole history, Fezco's uh, upbringing and Mm -hmm. um, really, really brutal and violent history uh, of his life and being thrust into big brotherhood then into parenthood basically of his uh younger brother ashtray um really really quickly and just i thought that was a really great choice to start the season especially as you know you kind of bookend the episode with 
Fezco uh, choosing to uh, you know throw hands with I guess not even throw hands really just assault Nate beat um, down at the party. But uh, yeah, I, I was so impressed with just how this episode mm. felt like it moved from one tense and gripping situation to another and just kind of like kept this level of anxiety throughout the whole episode how about you yeah totally i think you know when you think of what euphoria is there's a lot of like key touchstones that made the show really stand out and succeed in 2019 i think 2019 is a you know really strong year for television and euphoria was a big part of that you know you think of the lighting the the neon lighting that characters are constantly cast in Uh, even something as simple as like jewels having like crazy detailed eye makeup constantly there's an aesthetic to the show and from a structure standpoint you have the cold open centering around one single character featuring rue voiceover and fez did not get a cold open in season one fez became a very popular character through the course of season one in real life thus i'm sure that had a big part in motivating levinson to flush him out even more and to deliver on that cold open right away for, for fez in in the premiere really choice and then also to have uh i think something people are going to start shipping and really love with his conversation with lexi on the couch and then at the end of course him not backing down from nate fulfilling what he said to his face and just beating the living pulp out of him at the end a completely satisfying episode for fez a character that just really became if the most popular if not the most popular character on the show in season one i just it was an awesome example of like fan service meets the show being what it's always been and also just kind of making sense as a premiere to kick off a new season of the show i was i was quite impressed from everything with fez but in general i think the whole ensemble is served i think just just well enough for a reintroduction that this premiere basically is yeah i completely agree uh fez as a character a clear standout and fan favorite from season one um i I thought he was just fantastic in this episode and seeing the the multitudes of him, right? Not only uh, him dealing with this really intense and scary drug dealer situation where he's basically, you know, stuck up at gunpoint mm-hmm. um, uh, with Rue and his, his younger brother and just trying to like navigate that as best he could to having this very like charming uh, conversation with Lexi on the, on the couch, like you mentioned. And then obviously with the, the beat down at the end, gets to do a lot in this episode. Some, some good minutes for Fez. What other moments of the episode did you find yourself most invested in though? I'd say for myself, the, all the stuff with um, Rue and uh, Jules actually kind of took a back seat. And I yeah, found myself totally. a lot more uh, engaged with the, the other storylines going on. Yeah, I think, I mean, you have Cassie, Sydney Sweeney, and Nate, Jacob Lordy, kind of linking up with circumstantially on the way to the party. And whether it's alcohol induced or not, uh, beginning to hook up. And then there's this tension of is, is Maddie, is Alexa Demi going to find out? Yes, she's not really dating Nate right now, but Cassie's her best friend. You can't do that. And they both know they can't do that, but you know how it goes. So that tension in the bathroom, I think we all saw that coming. They're going to hide in the bathtub when they realized the window wasn't going to work. But the way they maintain that tension, especially with the phone, and then actually having the phone go off and having Maddie not even like check who it is doesn't give a fuck. But I thought it was all handled really well. And I think kind of a good use of Nate, because I think Nate can be a bit cliched in his just villainy. And like he, he's a big part of so much of like the con- conflict in the plot in season one that I, you know, I think can be a little um, a little tough to, to grapple with at times because I, I just feel like it was his actions often kind of uh, venture on like the beyond, beyond believability at times. But I think the way that he was used here in, in kind of like a triangle with Cassie and, and Maddie and the stuff with Cassie is completely new. Uh, uh, you just ama- amazing tension, right? You have Algie Smith coming in too. Uh, it would be a betrayal to his his best friend as well if he found out he was with Cassie. Like it's this whole thing, right? And you have to imagine 
there we might see this played played out further in the rest sure. of the season. But yeah, I thought that was a a nice thing because it's kind of like it, it's built up from the past season, right? All this tension, all these character relationships, and to see something that could be a nuclear bomb about to explode in in this friendship group, you know, and then it doesn't blow up. I thought it was all done well. Yeah, and you see, I think Levinson's uh, ability to really build tension uh, expertly as it cuts between, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Lexi knocking on the the door uh, of the bathroom and trying, or sorry, Maddie knocking on the door of the bathroom, trying to like get Nate to come out and like, are you taking a shit in there? And Sydney Sweeney getting all, you know, teary eyed and worried. That's that's my best friend. And then it cuts to Rue. Um, sitting on the floor, uh, almost going into cardiac arrest, um, having uh, the, the the person that she's on the floor with uh, crush up Adderall and give it to her. And Dominic that Fike, scene. baby. <laughs> yeah. And then you have, uh, I forgot, what was the other part they were cutting to? Was it Jules at the party? or Jules and Cat, I think, yeah. just like dancing Jules and drinking and, and stuff. Talking. Yeah, and, and, and Nate kind of like walking through or being in the bathroom and like freaking out, like cutting back and forth between all this, just really like building that anxiety. And so finally, like he opens the door, Rue's heart kind of starts up again. It's uh, really, uh, really well done. I thought that was great. I also loved the the shot of, you know, Nate at the party uh, looking through that like decoration at the house or whatever where he's like yeah. looks to the right and there's fez looks straight ahead and there's jewels looks to the left i think it was maddie dancing with that guy and just kind of like all these aspects of his life that are um maybe not going the way he want to or, or you know tense in some way that was really really well done what else stood out to you about it about the episode i, I mean you have other, other trademarks too right like uh, soundtrack key soundtrack drops is a big thing about euphoria i really remember uh megan the stallions to uh, cocky af from her tina snow mixtape being used in euphoria season one before megan had completely gone mainstream this time around it's a lot more noticeable stuff right it's tupac hit him up in the car rue you know saying biggie smalls and junior mafia mark ass bitches it's really funny to hear zendaya uh say that and then at the party it's biggie hypnotize and dmx it's like i don't know how accurate that is for right. some gen z <laughs> high school kids to be listening to biggie yeah. and dmx i wish it was because i mean that's better part of music than fucking little baby but i know that's what they're really listening to yeah you know that was something that stood out to me yeah first of all the needle drops were fantastic and i really enjoyed them but I, I was kind of asking myself, and this was pointed out uh, online, especially on Twitter, like, are, are these kids really going to be listening to this music? I mean, I, I hope so for this next generation, but I would I would doubt that that would be what would be played at this New Year's Eve party necessarily. <laughs> um, you know, also just uh, Fez having Ashtray start up the car and say, have the car running. Yeah, um, you, you knew it was happening after that. Totally. But I was also, you know, I saw the parking situation there. I don't know how easily Ashtray's going to be able to get mm. out of that parking situation. It's a lot of like, hey, can you move your car for me, man? Yeah. <laughs> In general, I was going to say, it's a lot of people driving to a, yes. a drinking event, to be honest. Let's wise uh, up here a little bit. Yeah, um, let's get some Ubers going. Well, and the other thing, too, is like, there was a few moments when I was like, you're not going to kill someone like this, right? Like, like, like... Sydney Sweeney could have easily died and flown through the windshield because she didn't have her seatbelt on when they were going 100 miles an hour. I was like, that would be wild. And then the other other hand, I was like, is Fez going to literally kill Nate right now? I was because yeah, I was watching. I, I like stood up when I was watching because I was I was very satisfied to watch this happen. And right. I was like, oh, wow, that, that would take some balls too, to to do that. Um, in general, I thought the whole, the whole episode just looked amazing. And apparently uh, Levinson and HBO and everyone, they um, they shot this on film this time around 35 millimeter film specifically. Look, they went to they went to Kodak. And had them remake uh, Ectochrome 35 millimeter film, which is a film stock that they stopped making in the 2000s. And the Euphoria team basically got Kodak to make a few thousand rolls of a retired film stock to make this show. And it goes a long way because the show looks fucking fantastic and it looks like a movie. And you love to see it. Absolutely. Uh, super pumped for Euphoria. I'm interested to see how some of the new characters. Uh, are brought into the show. You know, right now there's a lot of mouths to feed. So bringing in more characters to get time. I mean, I can't imagine you're going to bring in 
Uh, they brought in, I think, three people who are going to be main cast. Dominic Fike, Austin Abrams, and Javon Walton. Um, so, I, I don't know. We'll see. Right. Yeah, some of the advanced reviews said that it seems like Cat is going to be getting a bit of the short shrift, uh, relatively speaking, to the rest of the ensemble. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with Jules as well, because you had a lot of Jules like internal thoughts on her life and, you know, and, um, you know, uh, transitioning and just her sexuality and her mental health and all that in the special that came out post season one. It wasn't actually at the forefront as much in season one. On the other hand, season one wasn't like waving a flag and parading around the fact that you have a uh, queer relationship at the center of the show, just in the show. So it has before it has an intelligent view of this sort of thing. So I'm curious to see what the uh, the future uh, leads for that as well. Absolutely, we'll be talking about Euphoria as the season wraps up. You should be watching it as well. But Dave, let's jump from HBO to Amazon, where they dropped their newest film, starring Ben Affleck and Ty Sheridan. The Tender Bar, based off of the novel um, of, I, I believe it's novel the same name, right? Yeah, I think yes, it's more, of, more of a memoir than a, no, than a novel from the real real life J.R. Uh, Meringer. Right. Oh, Moringer, yeah. however you say it. And, um, you know, it, I, I don't know, not having read his memoir, um, I don't know if this recounts the whole of, of the book or not. It seems like this really focuses on young JR's life with his mom and uncle and his uh, absent or mostly mm-hmm. absent father. Um, and then how he uh, transitions into adulthood and finds his, his career and, and peace right. in his life in some sense. And, you know, as much as I think there's some really warm moments in this, some really nice and satisfying uh, stretches in this, I don't know if if this had a enough going on to really hold my interest, and I think it really feels just a a tad bit like dull at points. And I, mm. you know, we we talked about this uh, with George Clooney uh, in his last movie, um, for, um, the, the Midnight Sky on Netflix, yes, thank sci-fi you, on film Netflix. that he also starred in. Which I think there were points of that that also had the same problem, where it felt like there's some serious lulls in that film and can feel a bit like ah, this is dragging a bit. So I'm wondering if this is something with what Clooney goes for in his direction or not, but I'm wondering, did you, did you have the same experience where you just kind of felt a bit bored by this at, at points? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Clooney just doesn't have an amazing track record as a filmmaker. He's a far cry from Ben Affleck, you know, uh, Ben, Ben's a way, way better uh, director at this point. Uh, and I just maybe with a with a more experienced, more capable hand, the tender bar could be something a little more. Um, because what you get is it's kind of a segmented film with flashbacks and stuff. You have some use of narration, but not an overwhelming amount of it, which kind of came across as strange to me. You have a lot of un- underserved plot points because once Jr. becomes a young adult, played by Ty Sheridan, it's just a lot of like pots in the fire that just don't come to a boil correctly and you kind of get away from the best part about the film which is everything at the bar specifically everything with his uncle played by ben affleck so i just feel like it's kind of a a weak, a weak screenplay and you know uh, william monahan you know, capable uh, accomplished uh, screenwriter was behind the screenplay but it, it just it was just a kind of too messy i think to to rise above because like you said there's not like actually a lot going on but there could be a lot going on because thematically you have all these rich familiar yet potent themes of absent fathers and uh you know coming of age and struggling to make something of your life with limited means and all these really simple things to grasp and yet it's tender bar is quite surface level with just about everything so yeah, I was pretty disappointed by it. I mean, but I also felt like all the Affleck stuff was like really watchable and 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 solid. 
Yeah, I think that's that was my main takeaway was Affleck just in general shines in this. And I think he's uh, he's on a really good run recently where I feel like every time he yeah. pops up or he's doing something, it's just he just seems to be in a good place uh, acting wise. You know, we saw him in, uh, in The Last Duel. Just amazing in the last being absolutely just absolutely chewing on every single scene to the bone so he's not he's not to that level in this but i think he's just really enjoying himself which is nice to see um what do you think of ty sheridan's performance in this i thought he's all right uh i give ty a lot of credit honestly for trying to take on some more adult themes post ready player one he was also in paul schrader's card counter last fall in a supporting role so he definitely is trying to pick better roles. And I, I, I don't really think lay, lay much of the blame with the film at his feet at all. I just think he tried to make the best of the material, but like some of the stuff, like when he has to do all the stuff with his on and on again, off again, girlfriend, I'm like, this oh, is just brutal. This is not good. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, they're just weak scenes, you know, and like, you can't do anything about it. And everything at Yale in general is just kind of, kind of blah, kind of, surface level going through the motion stuff i wish if the screenplay was a little different if the direction was a little different you could have maybe skipped some of that stuff and just tried to i don't know big picture a little bit versus trying to bullet point the storytelling i don't know but i thought ty was okay yeah i thought he was okay um i feel like i've never been really blown away by him in a movie no. maybe maybe the card counter would, would change my mind with that i'm not sure but um <laughs> I agree. I think it's almost like they spend so much time establishing what his childhood was like in this movie. You know, you really get like probably 30, 40 minutes of that movie. Movie's only a hundred or yeah, 104 minutes long. By the time you really get to Yale, you have a couple more flashbacks. The yada yada, a lot of it focus a lot on the relationship. I don't get an African relationship. Um, and I think there were so many aspects of his childhood that could have been served better if they had spent a little bit more time. I feel like Christopher Lloyd is just kind of like not fully realized as a character. He's kind of like sitting there as like the old grumpy grandpa. He has the nice moment where he takes him to the the school function, um, but then kind of is sidelined again. It's like it, it, it was this just was are we supposed to take from that that this guy really had this like one nice moment with him and then was just kind of like there you know he dies at some point it's just kind of like not mentioned so like what do we make of that affleck really in that father role but he shines it shines a lot more when he's behind the bar and not necessarily being parental but more so like that like friendly neighborhood like spider-man guiding him along type guy yeah. it's uh <laughs> it's just really like strange how there's certain aspects that feel really good uh i i liked a lot of the stuff when um, you know, he goes for the interview with the New York Times and gets his first uh, was it like byline on and the Times or something like that. And I think that's really heartwarming. And then when he has the confrontation with his father when he's older, I thought that I was pretty satisfying. Although also kind of yada yada, I felt like yeah, rushed. I, f- I felt the, the the father was just a kind of uneven presence because he's like absent from so much of the movie. Um, but yeah, I feel like the sen- sentimentality of the movie. It's pretty solid. It's just the formulaic nature of the rest of it that gets right. in the way. Yeah, and even the the stuff with his mom, it's obvious how much he loves and adores her and gives her so much credit. And the the scenes that you kind of get the payoff for that, nothing is really said between them other than like, you look great, yeah. mom. You're, you're perfect. You're wonderful. And I was like, I need a little bit more here. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think my my favorite stuff was one of the uh, young young JR scenes where uh, Ben Affleck is picking up his boys to go bowling yeah. and just whip whipping the Cadillac. Affleck's hair looks amazing, and they actually go bowl uh, like candlestick bowling. Uh, that that was really fun. And, and then I think my other favorite part would be that really brief like dream sequence where you have Ty Sheridan seeing his younger self, Daniel Ranieri, the the the, the kid, telling him of. You know, why don't you wake up and wait 20 years so you can tell everyone how good you could have been? I was like, oh, that's actually like a really like, I think on the nose yet still bright way to come get that theme home. It was just kind of funny hearing the kid uh, say that. Yeah, I agree that that was pretty well done. 
I think overall this this movie was um, a, a bit disappointing for me, but you know, there's there's some stuff to like. Um, do you think this will get any award recognition? Well, Affleck was nominated for a supporting actor Golden Globe. The Golden Globes did just happen, not televised. Uh, you can see who won. So that that's something. But I don't think you're going to see anything else really from this. But uh, shout out Ben. He was pretty good in this. Um, not even his best supporting role of the year. No, of course not. Uh, <laughs> he's so good in Last Duel. I, I do want to say, though, Ty Sheridan's next one of his next movies is quite interesting. This was announced at the end of 2020. They haven't started filming it yet, but uh, it's an adaptation of the things they carried, the Vietnam War novel. And it has this it was already packaged and sold. And it, it has this huge ensemble cast. Ty Sheridan, Tom Hardy, Stephen James, Bill Skarsgård, Pete Davidson, Ashton Sanders and Moises Arias. Just kind of a loaded uh, war movie squad sound yeah. by the sound of it and that's a really famous well-liked uh book about vietnam so if they do make that movie i'm sure they're waiting out the pandemic a little bit uh we'll see what ties up to in that but yeah uh this that, is, that is pretty interesting yeah yeah for sure i mean tom, tom hardy and in, in war losing his mind wearing a mask you know sounds sounds right mm-hmm. up his alley <laughs> uh check out the tender bar on amazon prime but dave we were able to watch red rocket a uh a, a bit of a surprise film so that, that's getting some some recognition and, and some good reviews um you know i think what maybe surprised me most about this is there's like not there's no one really big attached to this movie and this is i think seriously one of those like art house movies that kind of pops up and it's not art house in the way that you'd expect like i, I think when when you think about art house you kind of think of like weird choices or very specific styles while there's certainly i think some specific choices that are made here uh this is just like a a really i think interesting story (laughs) you know uh, unconventional or maybe just a story that isn't really explored a lot yeah and uh you get simon rex as the star of this with I, i think someone that's a breakout star in the making Susanna sun um playing uh alongside him and i just was like totally blown away by everything with them on screen in this as you got to check this out what was just your initial reaction to it so i was not really surprised about this because this makes sense as the next sean baker movie sean baker's whole thing his whole vision about being a indie filmmaker in every sense he makes really tightly budgeted films as an independent filmmaker but his big thing is that he likes to work with non-professionals. He likes to work with people that aren't too famous. And, you know, once in a while, he brings someone in his last film, The Florida Project, which I really loved, uh, featured Willem Dafoe, who uh, did get a supporting actor Oscar nomination. And he had people offering agencies, you know, um, and, and talent uh, and, and agents offering more well-known talent for his next film just because people want to work with Baker, but he didn't want to take people too famous. And he was kind of going out of his way to keep doing what he's always been, which is kind of highlighting like these like slices of America and specifically his last three films with Red Rocket, The Florida Project and Tangerine, zeroing in on sex work and where that fits in with people uh, living and trying to make ends meet. That, that, that's been his thing right now and he says that he actually cast Susanna San because he's him and his wife saw her in the lobby of the Arclight Hollywood and they physically were like that is someone we want to cast that's a star and they hit her up two years later to make this and I was like yeah that's exactly that sounds exactly like Sean Baker to me and then you actually watch the film and it has again a lot of his aesthetics and vision and point of view like i said the sex work uh feel but also like his like aesthetic of like really colorful exteriors and stuff shooting on film like it's all all the trademarks that he's i think really kind of blown up with on like film twitter and like indie film fans and stuff the last 10 years and uh at the center of it of course you have simon rex no one would have seen this coming from Simon Rex so I think hats off to Baker for casting him in the first place and really 
kind of having that vision again to find his Mikey Saber, you know, the, the suitcase yeah. pimp character that's so central to the story. And uh, to give like a, a brief synopsis, basically Mikey Saber, as you mentioned, uh, this former porn star uh, went to LA, did a bunch of films. Now is returning to his hometown in, in Texas city, yeah, um, Gulf coast, and, Texas. And really uh, just has nowhere to go. <laughs> Very little money uh, tries to shack back up with his ex-wife um, and her mother, I guess maybe still wife, but uh, yeah, estranged, estranged. Yeah. And uh, you know, starts a relationship with her again, or at least a, a sexual relationship with her again and finds Rayleigh. Uh, should strawberry is that she's come to known in the movie donut the hole <laughs> the 17 year old uh girl who is i think absolutely stunning and just totally catches his eye and he starts envisioning you know them doing couple scenes like he used to do with his uh his estranged wife to become famous in uh the porn industry again and they start a relationship and it kind of then follows his uh relationship with her and just his life um man i i thought simon rex who i feel like i've only seen maybe like one other thing if that was just really really good in this and really magnetic and um the film doesn't really work if he's not good uh because you could totally look at this person just like that's a complete scumbag who i don't ever want to right you know spend time with and he's just i think even though obviously a, a jerk and not a very well put together person really magnetic still and that, that helps drive the plot along yeah i think that that's the key thing right and it, it speaks to the script and the performance that you have this 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 central character that's really self-absorbed really narcissistic really selfish but also really charismatic and kind of fun to be with yeah. and it's a great challenge for the audience because the movie doesn't gloss him up and and turn his life around and make and 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 have him atone and make him a better man by the end it does quite the opposite he basically hmm. devolves even further once he gets a little semblance of success and a foundation under him again and when you're watching all that happen you're kind of rooting against it because you're like oh we wanted to see you redeem yourself and you didn't do it yep a hundred percent and uh in fact i think he actually devolves as the movie goes on you know, you see uh, his uh, friendship with Lonnie and Lonnie being this person who I think is very like sweet at the center of it, but also seems like, um, you know, is like stealing valor and yeah. uh, pretty messed up stuff. Um, anyways, mm-hmm. uh, then you see the, like, like the car accident and it really just like is this huge, I, I think huge, but also like not super in your face metaphor for uh, the way that Mikey uses people, you know, um, when push comes to shove in these terrible situations, he's always going to look out for himself. And uh, that's kind of what happens. And Lonnie ends up, you know, becoming very publicly uh, arrested and blamed for this car accident, which technically is his fault. But also, I think uh, Mikey could take some responsibility for it and just not not going to happen. That's just kind of like, I think that sums up the movie really well. Um, but also, or at least the character of Mikey really well, but it was, right. it was tough to watch. I felt bad for Lonnie for sure. Totally. L- Lonnie also a local uh, piece of casting, non-actor. Mm-hmm. Sean Baker just picks out faces. The, the mom, the grandma, uh, or the it, Mikey's wife's mom, also a yeah. local that Baker, I think saw exiting a porta potty, I think is the story. And he's like, I think that's our, that's our mom. Like, <laughs> just wild, wild stories. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think a, another notable piece to this is you have interspersed through the story of characters kind of watching the lead up to the 2016 election. You see uh, Trump giving some speeches. I believe you listen to Hillary Clinton accepting the nomination, I think. And it's not explicitly stated, like anything politically, really, it's just kind of putting you in a place and seeing these characters kind of take that stuff in and you maybe you can draw some parallels to like thematically what's going on in the characters lives and obviously this is in texas so you know where it's largely going in this location but i i, I liked how like it wasn't like a preachy thing 
or like uh, like Buddhist man, he voted for X kind of thing either. Uh, it, it's just really smarter than 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 something I think kind of obvious like that. Uh, also, talk about a banger music cue, man! In sync, bye bye bye. Oh yeah, and beginning drop, ending drop, cover in the middle, mm-hmm. H- huge moment. Uh, and I think it really just works so well because again, that song's a fucking banger. <laughs> um, it's pretty funny because also I think all five members of InSync had to approve its use, so they had to like yeah. you know, talk indie to, film, man. They don't got no budget for that. <laughs> they they had to talk to Sean Baker and figure out what, what this all was about and approve it. Uh, that that's pretty funny to me, but also uh, definitely well done. You can also um listen to Susanna Sun's uh, cover on Spotify, I believe. So mm. check that out. I don't I don't know if we'll be adding it to the playlist, but uh, definitely a worthy listen. I, you know, I, this actually touches on something that we, or at least I'll say you, I, I now have seen this movie, but didn't get a chance to talk about it. Licorice Pizza, I think one of the critiques of it has been that um, the relationship is between a older woman and an adult and a child in the movie. Mm-hmm. And this technically, you know, is a older man with a 17 year old at the start yeah. of the film. I think by the time the film ends, she's turned 18. Technically consensual. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it has been getting some. I don't know if I don't know if criticism is the right way to put it, but people are are noting it. Did that stand out to you at all? Or did well, you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it doesn't really bother me too much because Mikey's a fucking scumbag. Like, yeah, yeah he, he, no, no shit. He's like, oh, look at this girl about to turn eighteen. I'm gonna make her my fucking partner and return me to porn glory. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it all tracks. Doesn't yeah. mean you have to be okay with it as the viewer of the thing, like, I don't think the movie's okay with it either. You're watching a scumbag, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Licorice Peace has a lot more nuance, too. We can talk about that uh, later, I think. But best movies of 2021 coming out later this week. Check that out. And, yeah, I think, I mean, you have this clearly uh, in her, uh, It's it, it, you know, it, it, it comes across quite consensual, I think, the whole thing. And even if there's like a, a shade of grooming due to the uh, motivations of Mikey, it's certainly unsavory. But I think that's kind of like the, the point, you know? Yeah. And you definitely, I think, get a very satisfying, uh, although I think, again, challenging moment when uh, Mikey gets beat up by Nash's parents, um, <laughs> who are obviously also people that I don't think many people would root for. But uh I think in some way you might want uh, a parent to beat up someone who's, you know, doing something like this with a a 17 year old. So uh, you can't compete with someone who's fucked 1300 bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Like he just, I think that's so great about Mikey too, right? Like you have all these things where like his, his self-awareness is, is largely uh, lampooned the whole time. Right. He's like, he's talking about how he went up to a hundred Instagram followers, you know, or, Mm-hmm. Paul Walker dies, and now he can't do be be Brian O'Connor in the Fast and the Furious porn spinoffs. He got <laughs> the revenue cut off. You know, it's like all these moments where they just—it's like this is a guy who like you kind of like watching, but time and time again, he just digs his own grave. Yeah, and uh, I also want to say I think the ending of the movie is really, really well done. Um, you know, not only the whole like final confrontation between the yeah. is it june is she the june yeah the, yeah june the and um, drug dealer. also a, a local casting but uh uh the drug dealer and um you know her, her brothers and then him running to the uh you know is that is the mom is june i think so running to her begging for money and then running to uh, strawberry's house and having the the like daydream about her in the red bikini i just thought it was all like really worked really well to kind of like hammer home the the story mm-hmm. and what the uh, yeah. shot, uh, baker was trying to get across totally and i think in, in the awards conversation simon rex definitely fits right into the uh, adam sandler position that sandler had with uncut gems when it's come when when it comes to the best actor race where there's like a performance that a lot of people are really behind and it's definitely justified and it's really cool to see as someone who's been in Hollywood, but maybe not recognized in this way. And it's just not going to happen from the horse bodies. Yeah. The major ones anyway. No, it's, um, you know, just looking 
year. It has gotten some nominations at smaller festivals, but yeah. Susanna uh, San had a few. Uh, she got the breakthrough nomination from Gotham's and supporting actress at Independent Spirit. So that's nice to see, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it'll be interesting to see if this makes either of our lists come later this week. But that is, as Dave mentioned, the, the second podcast you'll be getting from us this week, which is our best movies of 2021. So stay tuned for that. Dave, any last thoughts on Red Rocket before we wrap up? Definitely a movie that's worth supporting. It's A24, but it's also Sean Baker, where he's operating on a really tight scale. So this is the kind of film where when people don't see it, it even in any fashion, but they don't see it, like the run gets killed. So definitely try and seek out his other work if you can. I know Tangerine's on Netflix right now, and he, he, he seems to be rising. Too. Yeah, he seems to be rising online um which is which is cool you know he's not a young filmmaker or anything but uh definitely try and support indie filmmakers when you can so dave outside of our best movies of the year what do we got for next week so i've already seen it but the tragedy of Macbeth will be hitting apple this friday i would definitely recommend people check that out and then we have a lot of actually cool stuff second album long awaited from corday coming out new album from earl sweatshirt Conclusion of HBO Station Eleven, the start of HBO's DC Suicide Squad spinoff Peacemaker, starring John Cena. Strong reviews for that show already, and then hopefully we can uh, get to talk about Hamaguchi's Drive My Car, the lauded Japanese film that's been winning Best Film of 2021 at many critics' bodies. That's a movie in slow limited release so it's finally uh, in the mix for us so really ha- happy to dig into that finally stay tuned uh subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod uh go to spotify give us a five-star rating nostalgia pod on there and also follow the new playlist nostalgia best of 2022 on spotify we'll see you next week yeah.